Uh, While I mentioned verses 13 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2, two weeks ago in my sermon, I told you that we would slow down and look more closely at those verses as well because I missed last week. And in order to stay on our sermon schedule, I will be preaching, as Curtis said, this morning through verses 16 through 19 as well, which is how you get one sermon today for verses 13 through 19. The only alternative was to, to push all of these uh, texts and dates forward, and I just couldn't handle that. So this will stay true after, uh, after this week. Uh, one week ago today, thank you to those of you who have been uh, prayerful and, and helpful. One week ago today, uh, our adoptive son, Reed Watson Myers, was born. Uh, one week ago today, so I had a very good reason, I think, for not being here. Kristen and I had the honor of uh, being there for his birth. So, very excited. He is a week old now and uh, a champ doing really well. Thank you. Uh, Curtis, for um, last minute preaching in my place, I had told him in August, I said, listen, this baby's due date is in September, so there's a chance that he could be born on a Sunday, but what are the odds of him being born on a Sunday? You might want to be prepared just in case, but again, you know, it's only four Sundays in the month, so I was laughing Sunday morning as I texted him at five in the morning and said, guess what? You are up. So I know he probably was not laughing, which just made me laugh even more. (laughs) So thank you. And everyone else, uh, so many of you who did uh, so many different things and helped in so many different ways to help bring Reed home. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the support and the, the meals that have been provided this last week. Lord, thank you for the great meals. So we've been extremely blessed and then blessed and then blessed. Two weeks ago, uh, when I was preaching, I summarized Paul's words in verses 8 through 12, which is right before what we're going to look at today. And here's how I summarized Paul's words that he said in verses 8 through 12. I think he was saying to the Colossians, don't be taken captive by philosophy that promises to fill you, but is not according to Christ. Don't listen to any of that. Don't listen to it now. The 21st century. Don't listen to it then in the 1st century. Don't listen to any of that philosophy and its promises because in the end, Paul is saying, it will not lead to filling, but actually emptiness and Don't listen because you are already full. So just don't listen to what these false teachers are peddling because you're already full in Christ. You just, you don't need to hear about some other fullness. How are you full? Well, Paul has been telling them you are full, not empty, because you are, in this phrase he uses over and over again, in Christ. You are, as a Christian, You are united to Christ. And therefore, you don't lack anything. And that is the continuing subject. The sufficiency of Jesus. The preeminence of Jesus. 
That's the continuing subject through our verses today. So, Before I preach, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we are so thankful that You send Your Word to us and that You send Your Word to us by Your Holy Spirit. And we pray for what You call illumination, that You would light up our hearts and light up our minds with Your truth so they would be life-changing words, helpful, hopeful. Pray You do that now. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, to every Christian that is in the room this morning, Christian, you have been, by faith, this is what your Bible teaches you, you have been united to Christ. By faith. So, by your trusting Jesus, relying on Jesus, hoping in Jesus, committing to Jesus, submitting to Jesus, devoting yourself to Jesus. This is different ways of describing our reliance, our faith in Christ. When you do that, the Bible teaches you that something miraculous happens, and that is that you are united to Christ. Paul says in Romans 6.5 that we as Christians have been united with Him in a death like His, and surely then we will be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And when you're united to someone, including Christ, when you are united to someone, you become theirs and they become yours. That's what it means to be in union. Okay, We know this in marriage. Most people still talk about marriage as a union and it definitely is. Marriage is a union. Two lives becoming one life. Two lives merging into one. And when a union happens, including union with Christ, what the one you're being united to has becomes yours and what you have becomes theirs. So I could rightly say of my relationship with my wife that she's my beloved, I am my beloved, and she is mine. That's our understanding in our marriage. I don't even belong to myself. I belong to God first, but now as I've been united to my wife, I belong to her and she belongs to me. So when it comes to Christ, when you are united to Christ, all of the benefits, listen, all of the benefits of His life and death flow to you. As a Christian in union with Christ, what's His is yours. Specifically, all of the benefits from His life and death flow to every Christian. What kind of benefits? That's what Paul's been talking about. And it's what we read about in verses 13 through 15. Right? These benefits that we have because we are united to Christ. So as we all come to this passage now, when we read through about these benefits of Christ, I want you to be thinking of some questions about yourself. Are you joyless? Might be a question for you to ask yourself. Are you joyless today? I'm sure some of you are. Or, or are you 
I'll say that another way. Are you despairing? I'm sure some of you are. Are you, are you lonely? Are, are you finding that you don't have the same love for Christ that you feel like you once had? It feels like your uh, affections for Christ have cooled. Uh, do you not have a desire for personal holiness? You know you should have a desire for personal holiness, but you really don't have a desire for personal holiness. Or maybe another question you could ask yourself is, do you feel powerless in your fight against sin? Okay, because there's one answer to how to deal with all of those questions. That's why I want you asking them as we come into our text today. Because whether you are joyless or despairing or have cooling affections for God or, or you feel impotent in your fight against sin or you have no desire for personal holiness, if you then with that say, what do I need? Or what is, gonna, what is going to fix this? What's going to give me joy? What's going to get me out of this pit? What's going to get me wanting to be like God, holy and set apart? What's going to get me winning some battles with my sin? What is it that I need? Answer. Primarily, you need to understand your union with Christ. That's what you need. Simply put, you need to understand your union with Christ. You need to understand who Christ is and who you are in Christ. Your identity. Who Christ is and who you are in Christ. That's what you need to understand. And if you understood that, and if you will understand it, then comes joy. Then goes despairing. Then comes the desire to be holy. Because I think about who I'm united to. Then comes the power I need to fight sin when I understand my union with Christ. So that's why in the middle of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about what we're talking about today. If you have got hold of this idea, only he said this with a, a different accent. If you have got hold of this idea, and, and by this idea he means our mystical union with Christ. If you've got hold of this idea, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. That's a really big statement. So according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, take it or leave it. You don't get to do that with the Bible. You can do it with him. Take it or leave it. He said, if you've got a hold of your union with Christ, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. Big things at stake when we read Colossians 2, 13-15. Verse 13. Verse 13a, Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Saying, Christian, you were once a dead man. You were once a dead woman. Now when I first hear that, I need to understand what Paul's saying because as far as I know, I've never been dead. So what is it Paul means? In what way does Paul say we were dead? And he tells us, in 
your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. And you were dead. What's the other thing? Look. In the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's how you were dead. Trespasses. Uncircumcision of your flesh. What do trespasses mean? He's referring to actual sin. That's what a trespass is. Some of you, you've heard uh, the Lord's Prayer recited in different ways. One of the ways is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you thought that just built into the Lord's Prayer was this you know, concern for your private property and trespassing. And that's not what it's talking about, right? It's actual sin. There's a line and you crossed it against God. So he says you're dead because of that. And you're dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Or, if you think back to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, the uncircumcision of your heart. Paul's referring to your sinful nature. So he's talking about actual sin and sinful nature. You're dead because of that. That's two things. You sin by choice and you are a sinner by nature. Everyone needs to understand that. Those are the two things he addresses. You sin by choice. Those are your trespasses. And you are a sinner by nature. In fact, you sin by choice because you are a sinner by nature. It is what we do. Your heart is, my heart is from birth in a state of rebellion. The uncircumcision of our flesh. And so, you and I commit acts of rebellion. Our heart... We're born with an uncircumcised heart. The wickedness in our heart needs to be cut off. And we're born, it's not cut off. So, Paul is saying, what caused you to be dead was one, your sins, what you did, and two, your sinful nature, who you were. So whatever it means for us to be dead, it's because of what we did and who we were. But we still want to know, Paul, why, why dead? Why? Why doesn't Paul say, you were once sick in your sin or broken in your sin or not perfect? Because nobody's perfect in your sin. I mean, those will always be more gentle ways of saying this, but Paul says, dead. He's not talking about physical death. We know what physical death is. Physical death, the, that moment that will come to all of us when our soul will leave this body. Body's left behind. But the soul will leave. If you're a Christian, your soul will go to be with God. One commentator makes a distinction between physical death and spiritual death like this. And I think it's right on and really helpful. As the death of the body consists in its separation from the soul, so the death of the soul consists in its separation from God and His divine favor. So think of it this way. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And you and I were born with souls that were not in communion with God but we're at alienation from God, at enmity with God, against God. And we have, for those of us who have been saved, 
How does Peter describe it? Christ died once and for all to what? Bring us to God. Spiritual life now. But we were, Paul says, like the Colossians, spiritually dead. So think of a dead body. I don't know how many of you have seen a dead body, but it's, it's an unforgettable thing. And a dead body, it is very clear that the soul is gone. And a dead body is totally unresponsive. Helpless. Friends, a dead soul is unresponsive. A dead soul is helpless. A dead soul cannot give itself life. You see why Paul is using this description? It's what makes verse 13b, the second part of verse 13, good news. What does it say? God made you, he's talking to Colossians, alive together with Him. So Colossians, he's saying you were spiritually dead and now you are spiritually alive. God raised your soul from the dead. This is true for every Christian. There was a day when you were dead to God and alive to the world. And now you are alive to God and you are dead to the world. There was a day for the Christian when when the world had all of our heart and our desires and passions and we were indifferent to God. But when you became a Christian, you loved God and hated sin. And that was new. Before you loved sin and hated God. I mean, your world turned upside down. And now you were alive to God. And the God's Word meant something. It didn't bounce off of you, but it, it penetrated and it changed you and and gave you joy and, and emotion and conviction. You were awakened to God, but now the world and sin, while still having its claws in you, right, and still pulling you, it doesn't have the same sway that it used to have. It's just not your goal anymore. It's not your agenda anymore. It's not your passion anymore. Why? Because you were spiritually dead to God but now you're alive to God. He goes on, the last part of verse 13, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And how did God do that? Forgive means to let go. How did God let go of all of our many offenses against Him? How did He no longer hold them against us? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So friends, we have all offended God by breaking His law over and over and over again. There is therefore a record of debt against us. There is a record of our trespasses. There is a record of the wrongs that we have committed. They are not just forgotten. They do not just disappear. They don't just somehow mystically evaporate. They're there 
and damage has been done against others, you know this, and against God in offending Him. So there's a record of debt against us which leaves us, all of us, without excuse and without hope before a just judge who is God. That's the problem. This record of debt is the problem for humanity. We have pages and pages and pages of debts. Christian, when Christ died. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. When Christ died in His body, your record of sin was nailed to the cross. Your debt was paid. Maybe it will be helpful for you to imagine this. It's helpful for me to imagine this. Imagine a desk, right, with stacks and stacks and stacks of pages. You get closer to the desk and, and you look and here in really small font, front and back, page after page after page, and you start to look and read and you're terrified as you read and remember things that you had worked so hard to put out of your mind. You were reminded as it was recorded things that you had said. Things that you had thought. Things that you had done in horrifying detail. Now every person is going to die. And many, please hear this, Many will die and stand before Jesus with that table between them and the stacks of paper will be a record rightly condemning them. That will happen to multitudes of people. They will stand before Jesus and this desk will be between them. Picture that. With stacks and stacks of papers and there will be no explaining it all away and, and there will not be enough white out or red pen, it will be a record that rightly condemns them and their mouth, Scripture says, will be shut. If there's nothing I can say. I have no defense. It will be right, just, good condemnation when those people receive their sentence. And others... Christians now. Christians will die. Same thing. And stand before Jesus with the table between them. And according to verse 14, the table will be clear. There won't be anything on the table. There won't be anything between you and Christ. Just walk around this table. Clean table. And the Christian will know. And I think it will be unprecedented gratitude in that moment for all of us. Because the Christian will know 
that those stacks of paper weren't just pushed off the side of the table and into the garbage. The Christian will know that Christ died because of those stacks of papers. And that Christ took those papers in His body and had them nailed to the cross. They won't be in the garbage. They won't be under the carpet. They will be nailed to the cross. That's where they are now. So Paul is saying you are Christian full in Christ. Verse 15, more of what it means here to be united to Christ. What else has God done? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So put all those together. Paul is saying that on the cross, Satan was disarmed. He only has one weapon, and his weapon was taken. The only weapon that Satan has is your sin and my sin. The only thing that can send you to hell or send me to hell is sin. Satan cannot send anyone to hell. He does not have that power. Your sin is what sends you to hell. This record of debt is what can send you to hell. Now for the Christian, where is that record of debt? Nailed to the cross. So what has happened to Satan? He has been on the cross, what? Disarmed. His weapon was taken, and this happened publicly. Very publicly. It's what Paul means when it says he was brought to open shame. You ever been embarrassed? The more people typically who are watching, the more embarrassing it is. Who was Satan shamed before? The universe. The universe. The angels. And defeated. The decisive blow to his head that was predicted in Genesis 3, all the way back in Genesis 3, happened on the cross. So, God disarmed, put to open shame, and triumphed over Satan. So, do you know that, Christian, that Satan has been defeated? You see, one of the questions we were going to ask is Do I feel powerless in my fight against sin? Do I, I feel, as a Christian, sometimes like Satan has the upper hand? What do I need to understand? I need to understand my union with Christ. I need to understand that Satan has been defeated. It's just a lie. When you think I have to do this and I can't do the right thing and I'm enslaved to this, that's not true. That's just trickery. And we're just falling for it. The truth is Satan has been defeated. But be careful. It's not saying he's been destroyed. He will be destroyed, but he has been defeated. My understanding is that it is not uncommon, even in earthly wars, it is not uncommon to still have battles and suffering after a decisive or the decisive outcome determining victory has been won. We see this even in our own wars on planet earth. The decisive battle has been won, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all the battles stop. There's still battles and suffering and skirmishes, but they're not going to determine the outcome of the war. That's been determined by this battle. That's what happened on the cross. 
That was the battle where Satan was defeated. And so it says of Christians, looking back in Revelation 12, 11, and they, that's Christians, have conquered him, that's Satan, by, how do Christians conquer Satan? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So there we have it, verses 13 through 15. Christian, Paul is saying, you are full in Christ. How full? That full. Sins forgiven, record of death nailed to the cross. Satan, your great enemy, has been disarmed, defeated, put to open shame. You don't need these other philosophies. You have everything you need in Christ. Now verses 16 through 19. Here's what Paul is doing. Based on the fullness that the Colossian Christians have in Christ, verses 13 through 15, based on the fullness you today, Christian, have in Christ, Paul now does two things. He gives an instruction in verses 16 through 19, which we'll look at today, and then he asks a question in verses 20 through 23, which we'll look at next week. But here's Paul's two part instruction to those who are full in Christ. Verse 16. Therefore, there's our connecting word. In other words, because of what I just said in verses 13 through 15. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And how are the false teachers in Colossae passing judgment on the Colossians? Paul goes on, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. They don't let them judge you and tell you, hey, don't eat that. Don't drink that. You can only eat this. You can only drink that. Make sure you're celebrating this festival. Make sure you're celebrating this festival in this way. If you do these things, you're a good little Christian. If you do these things, you'll be saved if you do these things, you'll be mature in Christ. And Paul hates that stuff. He just hates it. And he encounters it in almost every church he writes to. In Galatians 4.10, when he's writing to the Christians in Galatia, he says the same thing. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul takes it very seriously. And so he's telling the Colossians, don't let them judge you. Don't let them tell you, hey, you're not a Christian if you don't do these things. Or you're not going to mature as a Christian unless you do these things. These false teachers are trying to impose on the Colossians regulations that they say are necessary for salvation and spiritual growth. Now in the first century, one of the most predominant ways they did that was to go to Christians and say, hey, look at all these regulations in the Old Testament. Look at all these dietary restrictions. This is clean food. This is unclean food. Look at all these festivals. Look at what your forefathers did. Look at what Christians have always done. They would point back to that and make a pretty good case for saying you need to do these things still in order to be a real Christian. Some people still do that. But it's not as common as it was in the first century. We have other ways of adding 
to Christ. But this is what they were adding then. A false teacher, when confronted on this, might quit back when you say, hey, stop telling these people that they've got to do all these extra stuff. He could point to verses. Say, what do you mean? Look at this. It's read our Old Testament. Do you not see what God's people have been doing since God made them a people? So why wouldn't we still follow them and practice them? You see why the Colossians, these new Christians, are in some turmoil. And Paul's got to write to them and says, hey, listen. Don't listen to it. Why not? Verse 17, Paul tells us. Why not listen to these guys? Why not follow these rules and regulations? These are, Paul said, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow. I know you know what a shadow is, but the Bible Knowledge Commentary said a shadow is only an image cast by an object which represents its form. So here's the connection here. Once one finds Christ, he no longer needs to follow the old shadow. Let me say that a different way. Christians are no longer obligated to observe Old Testament dietary laws or festivals or holidays and special days. Why not? Because those laws and observances pointed to a future reality that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were a shadow of Jesus, a prefiguring of Jesus, a pointing to Jesus. And now you have Jesus. So quit with the shadow, is what Paul is saying. If you want to read more about that, read Hebrews 10 on your own. This is what Hebrews 10 is all about. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author is making the point, listen, these were all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is here. Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. That's what he's talking about. Romans 7.6, Paul says, we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, you read a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament. We don't do sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the sacrifice. You read about the priesthood. We no longer have priests because Jesus is the high priest. We no longer have a temple because Jesus is the temple of God. And we no longer are under these dietary restrictions because Jesus came in Mark chapter 7 and said, all these foods are clean. So we're no longer bound by these restrictions. Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, if you want to read more. And 1 Timothy 4 3, where he talks about these restrictions and thinking that you can be justified by abstaining from certain foods as a doctrine that is taught by demons. Demonic doctrine that says you are saved or sanctified. By anything other than Jesus. A few weeks ago, we were up at a lake up here in the mountains. I don't remember the name of the lake, but our whole family was up there. And uh, I'm looking out at the water at one point, and I see this massive shadow. 
And I know that there is somewhere, I can't see it yet, there is a large bird that is flying over the water. And I look up and I can't see the bird, clouds, sky, sort of camouflage, and all I can see is the shadow. And so I'm following the shadow, and then I'm looking up, what am I doing, right? Because I'm trying to find this bird because I want to I see it. So it turns out it was a bald eagle. I'd never seen a bald eagle just in the wild before. Got the binoculars out and must have watched the bald eagle for 10 minutes. Now, at no point once I saw the bald eagle, you know where I'm going with this, did I start watching the shadow again. I didn't bring the boys up and say, boys, check out the shadow. Right? What an amazing shadow. No, it's a bald eagle. That's a bald eagle. We had this, that's not a bald eagle. That's a bald eagle. I don't think it's a bald eagle. It's a bald eagle. Look at that. You don't need the shadow. Why? Because you've got the, why would you ever look at the shadow anymore? Who cares? That's what Paul's saying. Quit with the shadow. You don't need the shadow anymore. It's a shadow of the substance which is Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying, look to Christ. He's going to say it in a minute. Hold fast to Christ. As well, verse 18 and 19. So he says, don't let them judge you. He also says, let no one disqualify you. Let's figure out what that means. Let no one disqualify you. The the Christian life is described by Paul many times as a, a fight or a race, and you can be disqualified. Now usually you don't find out, think about this, how this, how this works. Typically, when do you find out that you were disqualified? At some point during the race. Okay, have you ever seen that happen where someone finishes the race, where they finish the fight, they finish the game, and then the next day the report comes out, that they didn't abide by the rules and the regulations, and so you're disqualified. You don't get the prize at the end of this. Do you know the Christian life is described as a race, described as a fight? At the end, you receive a prize. What's the prize? Crown of life? Eternal life? You want to hear, as Matthew 25 talks about, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You did well. We hope to hear from Christ 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved His appearing. James 1.12 says the same thing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. So Paul says, if you listen to these false teachers and start believing what these false teachers are saying and living the way they are calling you to live, you're going to disqualify yourself. You're going to run the wrong race. The rest of verse 18. How are they trying to disqualify the Colossians? What are they calling them to do? By insisting on asceticism is basically punishing yourself and worship of angels 
going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It sounds like he's talking about one false teacher now who's probably spearheading this whole heresy in Colossae. And these men can't prove this way of Christianity that they're advocating. They can't prove it in the Word. So evidently, they relied on their visions. That's what they're doing. Paul mentions their visions. And so this guy, this false teacher, thinks he's closer to God because of his visions when ironically, we're going to find out, he's cut himself off from God. The Colossians were probably saying, rightfully, can you show us this in the Bible? What you're advocating. Yes, we see it in the Old Testament. We know, but but Christ has come and we've got these letters from Paul and these are done away with. And so this doesn't seem consistent with Scripture. And so what does somebody do who's proclaiming to have truth from God that can't be found in the Word? Historically, what do they do? God told me which spiritually backs you into a corner, doesn't it? Well, I don't, want to, I don't want arguing with you to be arguing with God. That doesn't seem fair. God told me. How did God? In a vision. Friends, this is why we tell you, be so, so careful with the visions and the dreams and the voices in your head. And do not be quick to call God the author. That's how the guy in Colossae bolstered his argument. And in actuality, he is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. I have found this often to be the case. Often that those who speak of an experiential intimacy with God that is found through totally unbiblical practices. And I've known and seen people who seem to just have an intimacy with God that I don't have and an experience with God that I don't have and a passion for God that I don't have and, and I, I, I envy it and, and want it. And at the end of the day, it seems to be rooted in just these unbiblical practices and this weighing of visions and dreams and and, and on and on and on. And then it usually is only a matter of time before that person who was so passionate and was so intimately connected to God apparently turns out to be an imposter that was running the wrong Race. Paul says, don't listen to this guy. Just flat out telling him. Don't listen to this guy. So that's what the false teachers are doing to try to disqualify the Christians in this church. But this is also very important. What are they not doing? You see that in verse 19? What are they not doing and not holding fast to the head. Who is the head? Jesus Christ. Why is it important to hold fast to Jesus Christ? Paul says, from whom the whole body, that's the whole church, 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, as the head of the body, not only provides leadership, but is also a source of provision for every member of the body so that every member of the body grows and matures. You see what Paul is saying that? Because the false teachers are saying, here's the road to maturity. Here's Christian at an elite level. Here's what the real Christians do. Jesus, that's good. That's fine. Maybe even some said it's necessary. But don't forget all of these things. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Jesus plus nothing. We need to rebuke that plus. It's just Jesus. No plus. No additives necessary. No additions necessary. So Paul is telling them, listen, you don't grow as a Christian through all these empty philosophies and rules and regulations and visions. and That's not how you mature in Christ. You grow by holding fast to Jesus. What does the Christian need to do? Hold fast to Jesus. How does a Christian grow? Hold fast to Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if all the help that we have today to grow in our relationship with Christ actually becomes unhelpful. Because you need to hold fast to Christ. And if we stop holding fast to Christ and start holding on to this resource, whatever it is, to the promises to grow us and mature us and give us the relationship in Christ we never thought we'd have, and if in doing that we sideline Christ, it becomes unhelpful. I really like the way John Calvin said this when he was talking about Christians and how we grow. And he said the constitution of the body the health of the body, will be in a right state. So he's saying the health of church. Church will be healthy if simply, I'm so glad he used that word, simply the head, which furnishes the several members with everything that they have, is allowed without any hindrance to have the preeminence. So how do you grow in Christ? If you were to sit John Calvin the premier theologian. Who would have sit down John Calvin and said, how do we grow in Christ? He would say, simply, simply get Jesus preeminent in your life. Just get Him in front of you. Get Him as the centerpiece of everything and hold fast to Christ. What about all this other stuff? You don't need all that other stuff. Hold fast to Christ. We think, where would Christians be without Christian bookstores? They'd be just fine. We get dependent on things, but they'd be just fine. They were fine for a long time. Holding fast to Christ. In conclusion, I think to summarize what Paul is saying, and I hope you hear Paul saying this, I 
I think Paul is saying this. I think this is the conclusion he draws over and over again in all of his writings, certainly in his letter to the Colossians. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You, Christian, are full in Christ. You, Christian, are complete in Christ. I think that language resonates with us in the 21st century. I think we all know what it's like to feel empty. I think we know what it's like to feel incomplete. I think we do hunger and thirst to be filled and to be whole and to be complete. And what Paul says, what God says, is you're only going to have that in Christ. And if you're like me, you find yourself trying to get filled all over the place. All over the place. And I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ. That I'm full in Christ. I'm running around this full cup overflowing looking for water to be poured into me. But what are you doing? You're full in Christ. We do not find fullness in And here's just some things we might try to find it in. There's no fullness in wealth. Fullness is not in success. Fullness is not in power. Fullness is not in control. Fullness not in philanthropy. Fullness not in self-denial. Fullness not in your family. Fullness not, this might be the big one, in relationships. Fullness will not be found. Wholeness, not emptiness. Whatever word you use, that will not be found in relationships. You may be complimented by others, but you will never be completed by someone else. You are full, or say it another way, complete in Christ. And I think all of us being as Augustine said, just restless as human beings, looking to be filled, we seem to in our day and age buy what's sold to us in that relationships is where you'll find that. I mean, one relationship with Christ, but no, you will not be filled in relationship. I know my wife and I, are totally comfortable saying that we do not complete each other. Now my wife compliments me. And I hope I compliment my wife. But we do not complete one another. She can say, Eric, I'm, you don't complete me. I'm fine. Thank you very much. She loves me. She needs me. But she's complete in Christ. So she was complete in our case before she met me. And we need to be careful. That wrong philosophy is prevalent. Be careful, be careful with your be careful with your young girls and the movies they watch. Because she will not be completed by the prince. 
Alright, that's it. That's the message for little girls in these movies we watch. The fullness will be in this prince. Now go ahead and love the prince. Marry the prince. If the Lord blesses you, have some kids with the prince. Have a nice long life with the prince. And you be his princess. And that's wonderful. And that can be great. But you don't need the prince. You need Jesus. So the prince complete compliments the princess. But not complete. So what do we need? We need Christ. There's an Old Testament writer who learned this. His name is Solomon. Over and over and over again in his book, Ecclesiastes, he says this phrase, vanity, vanity, vanity. Which isn't a word we use a lot, but he was saying, worthless, worthless, worthless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. In fact, at the beginning of his book, in verse 14 of chapter 1, he said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And he had... That was not an exaggeration. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so you read through Ecclesiastes, and he did. He tried working hard, and he tried being lazy. He tried it all. He tried being wise, and he tried being foolish. He tried all the pleasure this world has to offer, and I love his assessment at the end of the day. He said, meaningless, worthless. And others were sure to look at him and say, how can you say that? You're the wealthiest man on the planet. You have everything you could possibly want. Every pleasure at your fingertips. You're the most intelligent man on the planet. You have everything. And he stares down and says, I have nothing without God. So friends, don't forget how desperate you are. You need Christ. We hold to Christ, I find, only when we're desperate. The problem is we're always desperate and we just don't know it. And God will bring painful providences into your life. Think back, Christian. Right? God will bring painful providences into your life. If you're a Christian, what were you doing during that pain? You were holding fast to Christ. And then maybe the circumstances changed and got better. And then maybe you found, to your and my shame, that you weren't holding fast to Christ anymore. Because you didn't think you were desperate anymore. But is that true? It's not true. Christian, you are always desperate for Christ. So let me close with reading the uh, first question and answer which says as much of the Heidelberg Catechism. A song that we sung today, actually, is rooted in this first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, written hundreds of years ago. But it's a great first question and answer. A catechism, if you don't know, is a, a list of questions and answers that are used to teach doctrine. 
That's what a catechism is. And the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the best. And the first question is this. What is thy only comfort in life and death? Is that a good question? It's a good question. And I'm so glad it doesn't say, what is your greatest comfort? Or what is, out of all your comforts, what's the best one? What is thy only comfort? And here's the answer. Drenched in Bible. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we pray that You would remind us that You are our only comfort in life and in death. And so God, that that means that we can never lose comfort. That it is impossible for the Christian to lose comfort. Because we always have You. So thank You God for this truth. We pray that as we get caught in the same traps that the Colossian Christians did and we're tempted to follow this philosophy or that philosophy or tempted to try to work or earn our way to heaven or to get caught up in things other than Your Word and our own experiences and dreams, God, help us. Help us not to be taken captive by this stuff, but to do what You encourage us to do through Paul, to hold fast to our head, who is Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.